Welcome back to the SBS Sports Talk Show presented by the Sports Business Society at UVA. I'm Michael Rockless along with my co-host Nick O'Connor and our producer Will Harden. Today we're going to talk about the Final Four and National Championship game and recap the college basketball season while talking about the best coaches in the sport. And then we're going to talk about a special guest speaker we had at SBS this past week. Make sure you listen to this at 1.5 times speed. Hit it! All right, so we're back this week. Uh, we're kind of entering that short little dead period in, in sports in America, depending on what your preferences are on the sports that you like to watch. NBA playoffs haven't started up yet. We'll be talking about that next week um, as we're about to begin. Um, Final Four, March Madness just wrapped up this week. Football, obviously, leading up to the NFL draft. And baseball regular season, as great as it is, it's a marathon, so not much has happened in the last couple of days, the first couple of days of the season to merit much conversation. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about the final four and then a general recap of the college basketball landscape and some of the coaches um, that are, you know, dominating the sport right now. So just to start, Nick, what was your reaction from the final four? Obviously, Michigan beating Loyola, outlasting them, and then Villanova, their two games over Kansas, and then Michigan absolutely dominating performances. What were your thoughts about the final four? Yeah, I really liked watching the Loyola-Michigan game. Um, I thought, you know, Loyola really gave it all they got. I just, I think they fell short on the talent level. Um, it really showed in the second half, just when Michigan started to answer, and they just couldn't stop their run. Um, but I thought Loyola did a lot of things right. Um, they played really good defense in the first half. I mean, they honestly had the game. Um, if they could just stop, um, how do you pronounce it, Wagner? Wagner, Wagner, yeah. Wagner. Um, with a W. With w. a W, which is I always throw no me Wagner, off. Yeah, yeah. Wagner. Um, they just weren't really able to stop him down low in the first half, and he could just continue that streak, um, hitting a bunch of threes in the second half. Um, and they just failed to stop them. Um, and it was unfortunate because they, I mean, they started off really strong, um, moving the ball well, um, forcing uh, Michigan to turn the ball over, um, doing all the things you needed to do right. Uh, it was just unfortunate they fell flat in the second half. And then, you know, transitioning to the other game, Villanova's Kansas, it was just an utter blowout. Um, Villanova just could not miss from the three-point line. I believe they had 13 threes in the first half. Um, continued, you know, that in the second half, I think had 18 overall. Um, you're just truly impressive, just dominating. Um, and then again, just continue that dominance in the finals. Yeah, yeah. Going back to that Michigan Loyola game, um, last week we talked about it. I was on Loyola's side. I thought, you know, Michigan, both these teams really did not have the toughest path to the Final Four. I mean, Michigan, the highest seeded team they played was Houston, who was a sixth seed who they, you know, barely beat, you know, in the buzzer beater. And Loyola, the highest seeded team they faced was Tennessee, who wasn't a terrible team. But after Tennessee, they faced seven seeded Nevada, who they they eked out a win against, and then they, they beat Kansas State pretty good, who was a nine seed. But I was on Loyola. I thought, you know, a lot of good seniors and juniors, very sophisticated uh, style of play, play defense, um, really solid coach. I thought they had the makeup to be that first 11 seed, double digit seed to break through to the finals. And after a slow start, they looked like they were going to be that team. They were really in control of the game from about the last. 10 minutes or so of the first half through, you know, the first couple minutes of the second half. But what it really looked like was, you know, playing a team that is, you know, superior in talent with the Mo Wagner and Abdur Rahman uh, among some of the other guys. It seemed like they kind of ran out of gas and they, they just kind of stopped playing their game and were stopped being able to play their game. And Michigan, you know, forced them into that and took advantage and was ultimately able to go on a pretty, uh, you know, 
killing killer style run there that kind of put them away uh where you know Loyola was just turning the ball over so consistently weren't even getting shots up the shots they did get up weren't good and then on the flip side Michigan scoring at will against a good Loyola defense so I was disappointed that they ran out of gas and couldn't make it to the uh to that final game because I thought they were an 11 seed quality team that could have done so yeah they also showed that just Loyola really didn't have the depth I remember when they started turning the ball over and they tried to make some substitutes and the guys they brought in just were not fit to be on the floor um they just were not athletes and they just you know they again turned the ball over and got quickly taken out um i think only Loyola really runs six six men deep from what i, I was seeing i think I they had really, eight maybe, maybe eight, but okay they, but i don't know how many there's guys, two guys that were just like came in that um you know he tried out and the guy like airballed a three he got suddenly taken out well he uh, had then, cramps that guy had cramps oh, had but cramps towns yeah and he was one of their better players but i you yeah. know they just had a lot of struggles um you know, once, you know, they had, you know, I think it was up to nine or 10 point lead in the second half. And it was like, they're in command of this game. And, you know, Michigan, to their credit, really, you know, kind of, kind of tightened, batting down the hatches and was, were able to get a lot of easy stops, you know, not even forcing misses. And then on the flip side, yeah, as you said, Mo Wagner took over the game and, and that was enough to get them through, you know, pretty convincingly over the last couple of minutes, at least. Yeah. What were your like final takeaways from, um, you know, the Michigan Loyola in the sense that um, do you think that teams can replicate what Loyola did in the future, being that lower seed, but having those more experienced players and just playing that that central, you know, good defense, um, you know, everyone can shoot and do you think that can be replicated? Yeah, it, it obviously takes some luck. Uh, that's how I see it. Loyola, obviously a very well-constructed team that does a lot of things the right way. You know, a lot of seniors, uh, three seniors, I think, and a, a bunch of juniors who all won at the high school level. That was something that Porter Moser, their coach, really wanted to target when he recruited. But even a team like that who made a Final Four run and, you know, they played well throughout. They still required two buzzer beaters in their first two games against Miami and Tennessee to even make it to the Sweet 16 where they ultimately, you know, won the next two games. So I think it takes a lot of luck because, first of all, you need to win your conference tournament. When you're in a conference like the Missouri Valley, you got to get that automatic bid. And then from there, you know, you're playing, you know, good power five teams the whole way through. And, even, and, you know, you might run into a really good team. I don't think they did until maybe Michigan, but I don't think they did. And even with, you know, not the hardest of schedules, they still, you know, needed to pull some games out of, you know, out of the hat there at the end. So I think it's replicable in the sense that that's the kind of team, if I was a mid-major, I would really want to try and build as, you know, you're not going to be dominant every year unless you're Wichita State or Gonzaga or some of these very rare circumstances where you've had consistent success as a mid-major. But I think what you can do is try and do it in cycles and and have, you know, a, a class or two classes that overlap that once they all, you know, develop and are at the end of their careers is a very formidable team and can make some noise in March a lot along the lines of what Loyola did. Yeah, no, I agree with all that. I think definitely you don't really get that lack of competition every single tournament that just by chance, you know, they had a really easy route um, to get to that final four. Um, but in that championship game, um, what were you most impressed about with Villanova? Well, I think with Villanova, the whole thing was, you know, watching them throughout the tournament, um, you know, they won every game pretty comfortably. I mean, they were down um, in the second half to West Virginia, but their average margin of victory was 17 points. And the big thing that I had reiterated with Villanova is they just have so many good players, just so many of them. Like, their sixth best player, their sixth man, is Dante DiVincenzo, who goes off for 31 points in the championship game. So I think that's my biggest takeaway is when you can have a sixth man, and I think you go down their roster, and he's legitimately might be their sixth best player, and he's capable of having the kind of game he did in the championship, that's what's most impressive about them. I mean, forget the style of play, 
you know, Jay Wright's a phenomenal coach, which we'll talk about coming up. It's just the fact they have so many quality, quality players that you can turn to. And it's it, it, Jalen Brunson's the player of the year in college basketball. He was not their best player in either Final Four game. In the first game, it was Eric Pascal who only missed one shot, 10 of 11 from the floor. And in the championship game, it's a guy off the bench who scores 31 points. That is extremely impressive. And it's no surprise that they were this dominant in the tournament when you when you watch them consistently and see just the, the firepower they had up and down the roster. It's really incredible, and they were a fantastic team. Yeah, no, they showed it with that experience, too, having those juniors and seniors really seem to help, you know, especially going to the Final Four and um, Finals matchup. Um, you know, just having that experience, um, playing in the tournament before, um, you know, knowing when to perform, um, you know, they had that. And I, I think I think – you know, Jay Wright's philosophy of, you know, having a team that's been playing together for a couple of years um, seems to work. Yeah, well, that's one thing we can segue right into that right now. If you were to take a look at the landscape of college basketball over the last several years, you would say the most successful teams, if we want to narrow it down to the last two years, which is a pretty short time frame, but I think it gives you a pretty good scope of where the sport is headed, in my opinion. Last two years, the three most success or last three years, um, the three most successful teams have been Gonzaga, who went to a championship and is seemingly in the Elite Eight or Sweet Sixteen or you know, whatever, every single year. UNC, who went to -to back-to-back championships and won one. And Villanova, who's won two championships and was the one seed each of the last three years and a number one overall seed the year that they didn't win, or as a two seed the first time that they didn't win, uh, the first time they won. Um, So those have been the three most dominant teams. And what is one commonality that those three teams don't have that a lot of the other elite teams you would think do have? Having those older players. The older players, no one-and-done guys. So a really specific or a really interesting stat is that since the one-and-done became prominent, so, you know, once they uh, disallowed players to go to the NBA right out of high school, so right around 2005, there have only been two teams that have started one-and-done players and won a championship in college basketball, and that was Kentucky with Anthony Davis, which was a great team. Obviously, Anthony Davis was an all-time great college basketball player the one year he played. And Duke, when they had Justice Winslow, Jalil Okafor, and Tyus Jones, and even Duke was, you know, had some very contributing seniors like a Quinn Cook. Grayson Allen was a freshman on that team off the bench, but he wasn't a one-and-done guy. But you look at these teams that have had really good success. You think Wisconsin, the year that they lost to Duke with those one-and-done guys, very similar to the mold of these UNC, Villanova, Gonzaga teams. That seems to be the direction of the sport where – you know, you can have all these elite prospects. Duke's going to be getting one through three in the recruiting class next year. But does that really result in the best outcomes in March? And I would say the recent data sh- says no. Like, you can win tournament games with these guys for sure. But even think Duke-Kansas. A lot of seniors, juniors on Kansas's team, not really the one-and-done. Duke obviously adopting the one-and-done mold. Didn't beat Kansas. I think it's a very clear shift that now the one-and-done has kind of played out. Teams do it. Kentucky Duke are the the main leaders for it. Those teams are not the ones consistently winning in March. You can win a different way, and quite frankly, it's much more impressive to win with a team like Villanova or UNC or Gonzaga. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely a function of the market finally adjusting. So you had those teams like Duke and like Kentucky um, first attacking that one and done strategy, and right they're able to get so many, you know, so many of the good recruits that they were just able to win and be in those tournaments and be in those positions to win. But, you know, when teams start to adjust and a lot of teams can attract those one and dones now, um, as we've seen, right, LSU and um, Arizona, Arizona, UCLA, yeah, it spreads them out a little bit. It spreads them out, you know, even like Missouri, right, getting these one and done players that you just usually you wouldn't see from outside of Kentucky, outside of Duke, outside of these top teams. 
Um, so it's finally the market's adjusting, and then now it's what's the strategy? Having those you know players with um, you know the leadership and experience like a Villanova usually does. You know you like to think like UVA does, but it doesn't seem to work out in their favor. But like UNC usually does. Um, you know, like when UConn, right, won two times, both having those leadership. Best um, players were upperclassmen. Kemba upperclassmen, and exactly. Shabazz and Napier. when we've seen the past champions, you know, in the past 10 years, um, you know, it tends to favor the teams that have the senior leadership. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, um, you know, potentially, right, if they change it back to, you know, players can go to the NBA straight away or, you know, what's the rule changes, um, how that will also affect these uh, these teams' mindsets. Yeah, one of the things I do kind of want to combat what you said, just to prove that the one and done may not even, even further prove that it's not necessarily the best way to go is it's not that Duke and Kentucky, you know, it is maybe a little bit more spread out with some of these more teams getting in the mix, but Duke still had Marvin Bagley. Duke still had Wendell Carter this year. Um, I might be forgetting another one-and-done guy that they had. So they still have multiple, and next year they still had the top three players, or they have the top three players in the class coming in. So they're still getting a high concentration of those elite players. But, man, you come up against Villanova, who runs six deep with no freshman, or one redshirt freshman, Omari Spellman. So he's not, so he's not really he's not a one-and-done, even if he were to leave because he already redshirted a year. So you come at a team that you know goes six deep with guys like that, you're not beating them. Villanova is a better basketball team than Duke, even if Duke has far superior NBA talent. And I think that's what you've seen as you know all of these non one and done teams are the ones that are actually making it to the championship and winning the championship. And it really looks when they play those games like uh, Villanova versus Kansas or um, Villanova versus Michigan versus these younger teams. It really looks like men versus boys, right? These players are just bigger, stronger, um, have more refined skills, um, and that's what happens, right? When you have years to develop, um, and that's what coaches like. You know, certain coaches like having those players that will stay, like Jay Wright, like Tony Bennett. But some coaches, you know. Right, have adopted the strategy of just being okay with those one and done players. Um, and it's interesting to see the results as we've seen in the last five years, and we'll see the results in, you know, continuing in the future. Yeah, yeah. So you're mentioning coaches, and that'll kind of bring us to uh, the next thing we wanted to talk about, which is so there's college coaches is obviously a big, big business, so to speak. Um, a lot of really good big name coaches. And I think you can make an argument that you can tear them off pretty cleanly with tier one being, you know, your all time elite coaches, um, probably a prerequisite, multiple championships or at least very consistent March, like big time success. And then a tier two would be someone who's had, you know, March success, usually pretty good, but team isn't always the top. And then the tier three would be, you know, you're very good consistently, maybe missing uh, a piece in terms of March winning, or maybe the team has been really good at times in March, but also not consistently good. So kind of tearing it off that way. So obviously if you were to break it into tiers, tier one would be Coach K's in there. Mm-hmm. You have to put Tom Izzo in there. And I think tier one's a pretty short list. And I think if I think there's only three guys, and I think that third guy is Jay Wright. Really? Yeah. You don't think Roy Williams is into that category? So Roy Williams would be... Because in my mind, I find Roy Williams a better coach than Tom Izzo. I think he's had more success. Um, you're right, he's had more champions. I, don't, I mean, has Tom Izzo... I don't think Tom Izzo's... He's on one. I, I, one. I think one total. You know, Roy Williams has had his repeated success um, time in and time out in the ACC, a very, very tough conference. Um, for me, Tom Izzo doesn't quite make that top tier list, but... Um, I you know I, I think Jay Wright and uh, Coach K are definitely in there. That's those are your one too. Yeah. I, I might I might agree with you and and kind of dock Tom Izzo because I, I do think there's a point to be made that Roy Williams is better than Tom Izzo. I mean, 
Roy Williams, there was a year that they missed a tournament, but he has had some really loaded teams. The two teams that went to back-to-back championships recently, 2016 and 17, they won one of those. And then also back when he had Hansbro and Ty Lawson back in the late, you know, 2000s, um, you know, 2008, 2009 uh, area when he they just dominated, ran their way through, beat Michigan State in the mm-hmm. title game. But I think what what I like about Tom Izzo, and, and I'm not a huge Michigan State guy, uh, some bad luck with, with UVA against them, but always seeming to get a lot more out of his guys in March than just about any other coach. The amount of times that they've made the Final Four or made a run when they, you know, have been a seven seed or been a four seed or a five seed, I think that just trumps uh, maybe some of Roy Williams where he's had just really, really good teams consistently. And I, I don't know. I think there's but something to be said. using that logic, you could also say that perhaps Jim Payheim, right, is in that top tier list. Yeah, right? and I, Consistently winning, but again, right, consistently getting the most out of his players in the tournament, as we've seen in the past couple of years, being that 10, 11 seed, 9 seed, um, and still able, you know, to get to the lead eight to the final four sometimes. Yeah, no, and I think... I think Izzo is more consistently good than Bayheim. Mm-hmm. Definitely made more Final Fours. Bayheim uh, is made. I know he won in two thousand three, and then he's made two Final Fours since then. Um, but Izzo is there consistently with Michigan State. I think that's a, the debate to be had: is is Izzo a tier one coach? Uh, we've seen him the last couple of years get knocked out way earlier than people thought. Obviously, they lost to the fifteen seed in twenty sixteen, Middle Tennessee State. This year, they lost to Syracuse and Jim Bayheim. Uh, so I think that's a debate. But either way, you want to. Yeah, I was about to say, do you think um, a function of having very high expectations? So, you know, obviously Michigan State um, has been good, um, you know, for a couple of years. And then, all right, people have these expectations that they're going to be supposed to be going to the finals every year. I mean, they, was, people pick them every yeah. year as a three seed to win the championship. To win the championship or final four, always getting there. Do you think those expectations are finally somehow building up in the sense that they feel this pressure to win every game when in the past they might have not felt that way? I don't know. I think Michigan State's been a premier program you know, since the early 2000s when they won the championship and consistently been a March threat. I don't know if it's an expectation thing. I, I mean, I just, I, there is a thing I, I would be willing to give up on, but I think right now, especially over the last three years, we've seen it with that really quick rise of Jay Wright. Obviously, Shashevsky's untouchable, um, but Jay Wright, I think, has clearly moved into the number two spot, winning two titles in three years this year in absolutely dominant fashion. Um, so yeah, and I think as we move on into tier two, a couple guys we didn't mention for tier one, maybe guys that I may have had in tier one in the past, but I think have kind of fallen off a couple names that come to mind really quickly for me are John Calipari Mm -hmm. with Kentucky, obviously, and Bill Self with Kansas guys that, you know, Kansas has won their conference 14 years in a row, but the drawback with them would be for all of those number one seeds, which I think they have a one or two seed every single year. Like I can't remember the last time they were worse than a one or a two seed, usually a number one seed like this year. And they made it to the Final Four this year, but I would say that's like a general overperformance for them. They seem to fall short in the tournament a lot. They obviously won one championship, 2008, on the Mario Chalmers against Memphis, which is against John Calipari. Mm-hmm. But I, would you fight for either John Calipari or Bill Self into the Tier 1 status? I would not fight for Bill Self just because I think they've been able to attain those number one and two seeds, you know, it seems like every single year because they have such an easy conference. They're not really usually tested in the regular season, in my mind. Um, I just don't think they've had as hard of a conference as the ACC, as a Roy Williams. Yeah, we're, we're not big. Me and you aren't big 12 guys. Not we're big 12 guys. Big 12 you know, guys. you may disagree on that, but that's just my opinion. Um, I think I think Coach K, again, is in that Tier 2 category. Just because Coach of K? The, I'm sorry, not Coach K. John Calipari. Okay. Oh, um, I was, isn't, isn't that I tier was about to... <laughs> my eyes lit up there for a second. In that Tier 2 category, just because of that inconsistency. Um, you know, it seems like he'll have a really, really good team, and then he'll go an 8 or 9 seed and, you know, fall short. 
Um, so for me, is that inconsistency, and it seems that when right, they're not the only one and done team anymore. They don't really seem to be having the repeated successes they did in the past. Yeah, when they're they haven't been able to separate with talent mm-hmm. recently. Um, obviously, 2015 they almost went undefeated, which that's arguably yeah. why they didn't if win. You're, if you're talking about top recruiter, I think John Kyle Perry right is definitely in that tier one category. But in terms of right, getting the most out of what your players can do and then performing in the regular seasons in the tournament, it doesn't seem like Kyle Perry has those um, you know qualities. Yeah, so I think those guys pretty strongly fit the Tier 2 criteria, both with one championship, both get to Final Fours consistently, but with you know a very high level of talent when they do. Um, I do like Kyle Perry, but at this point, I wouldn't fight for him as a Tier 1 guy. I mean, you're looking at... You know, if you were to include Roy, well, let's say we include Roy Williams and, and Tom Izzo, you're looking at between Coach K, Jay Wright, Roy Williams, and Tom Izzo, you're looking at every single one of those guys has multiple championships except for Tom Izzo. But Tom Izzo is the exception where he's just gone to so many Final Fours um, and his team's always seems to be there in March and maybe not as much recently. But yeah, so those are, I think, the, the leaders of the Tier 2 would be your Cal Perry and your Bill Self. And then a guy we talked about earlier, Jim Beheim, to me, with the one championship 2003 with Carmelo Anthony you know great player um and then a couple final fours thereafter throws the wrinkle at you with the zone the thing about Jim Beheim, where I think he falls to the lower end of the the tier two spectrum is his team's on on the bubble consistently now they've had problems with the NCAA some sanctions that's taken away scholarships like this year so they ran a very short lineup a very limited rotation but I mean none of these other guys we've mentioned are consistently battling the bubble, where Jim Beheim seems to be doing that very consistently over the last and several really years. really, after 2003, I mean, they had a stretch after 2003 where they just did they not... They disappeared. They disappeared. They could not perform in the tournament. I mean, I think you had the Johnny Flynn year where they were good. I think that was... They were, they were a one seed. Um, they were a one seed. I Probably a little bit oh nine maybe because the Flynn was like the Steph Curry era yeah, like that yeah, time yeah. but they were a one seed when they were Big East team so there was a couple years in there Fab Mello was on yeah. one of those and teams had some success like but a, again really they seemed to disappear after you know Mello won them that championship it seemed, seemed like basically single handedly um, and it really only hasn't been until recently where he's had a couple of those final fours and again being the lower seed and like knocking higher seeded teams off you yeah. think about this year with Michigan State played Duke tough and then of course they made it to the final four as a, as a 10 seed um, against UVA. Mm-hmm. Exactly, you know, having that success, you know, more recently is interesting um, because he hasn't really had as talented as team. So um, it's interesting what that's a function of. I really haven't, you know, quite been able to understand why he's had this success recently. Um, I think I, my guess, my guess would be when you throw that zone at a team, you know, the ACC, when he plays these teams in the ACC regular season or the Big East, which he had, you know, now they're very familiar with the zone. Like you prepare for it much better. You know what to expect. I think when you throw it at a team in the tournament where they don't have a lot of time to prepare, like I think it's hard. And it college kids, you know, they're not pros. They're not going to make a wide open shot every time. So I think you know you can get some. You can play to your strength there. I think that would be the success. Is the wrinkle they do play the best zone in the country. They're the only team that's been able to stick with it. Duke obviously moved to it this year and got exposed by Kansas. But I, I think it comes down to more. More that, you know, in the tournament, he's been able to, that wrinkle has been proven very effective. And he's, against UVA, he's mixed it up, made him speed up, and that helped him win that game. No, Jim Beham has definitely pioneered the 2-3 zone in college basketball. I'm really surprised that more teams haven't even, um, you know, taken after his strategy. Um, just because usually in college, you know, the basically players cannot shoot the three ball well enough to punish the 2-3 zone like they can in the NBA. 
um, there's not as good um, of three-point shooters. And if you can have a strong active zone that's fast and can get out on shooters, um, it's really tough to beat, um, especially in the tournament, right, when you don't have the time to prepare. Um, and again, that's probably right why he's had this recent success is just, you know, you get teams like who haven't played him in the regular season, perhaps, and he's able to do really well versus them. Yeah. And then one last guy I want to mention as a, a tier two coach, um, been to the tournament forever, years in a row now, powerhouse seemingly every year, finally broke through to the final four championship game last year. That's Mark Few at Gonzaga. I think that being able to get there with, you know, their team was number one um, almost the entire season last year. I think having that quality of a team and performing in the tournament elevates him to number two. Um, Rick Pitino, also a guy that would be a tier one, tier two guy, may never coach in college basketball again, so doesn't merit a ton of conversation for us. But moving into the tier three guys, obviously the one guy of interest to us who, you know, we really love here at UVA is, is Tony Bennett. So mm-hmm. before we talk to, to about Tony Bennett, who who I think we can spend the most time on of all the tier three guys, a couple other guys I'd want to mention as fitting that mold is like a Sean Miller, mm-hmm. who, you know, very similar to Bennett in the sense that a lot of regular season success, a lot of high rankings, a lot of high seeds, hasn't broken through to the Final Four yet. You think about Greg Marshall at Wichita State, consistently good, has gotten to the Final Four, but uh, you know, coaching in that Missouri Valley Conference, you know, up until this year, um, not necessarily the, you know, he's not a tier two guy, doesn't have a championship. Bob Huggins similarly had some success. Team is, you know, usually in that four or five seed range, been to a Final Four before. Uh, Mike Bray, maybe the lower end of tier three. Notre Dame, um, usually. Good teams, hasn't broken through the final four yet, but usually pretty good. And then Beeline, of course, is a guy now. Been to two championship games in the last, I don't know, six years, I think. Um, 2013 was the last one against Louisville. So he's definitely a guy, you know, another guy who doesn't always consistently have a top-seeded team, but has been able to get a lot out of them in March and perform well. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about those guys specifically, um, you know, before we get to TB. Yeah, no, I think one of the guys you mentioned that I really like, um, Mark Few, right, you know. Tier that, two guy that we decide, we, tier two. I yeah. think so, I think so. You know, I obviously he doesn't get a lot of credit, right, being in a mid-major, yeah. you, know, you know, he doesn't have a strength of schedule, um, like these AC teams and like these big 12 teams. Um, and so usually did not get that respect until they were finally able to break through and get to that finals. Um, I think that was definitely, um, you know, that was definitely impressive and that definitely showed that he has the capacity to get to the championship because there's always a lot of questions surrounding that. Um, and really he resembles, um, you know, when I watch him coach is like a Brad Stevens, you know, just having that, um, you know, smart offense, not committing a lot of turnovers, always having a very sound defensive team. Um, you know, and just playing well and getting the most out of his players. So I'll definitely include him in that tier too. Yeah, yeah, I like Mark Few a lot, like you said. You know, and then Gonzaga, you know, that's a team I think they've been to four sweet sixteens in a row. So maybe up until last year they didn't have a ton of March Madness success. Mm-hmm. But I mean they're still getting to the Sweet Sixteen, you know, this year. Same thing as a four seed, so always playing well. So all right, so let's go and talk about uh Tony Bennett, coach of UVA, obviously over the last uh five years now, three one seeds and a two seed, uh one elite eight. Um, couple sweet sixteens, two regular or a couple regular season ACC titles, two ACC tournament titles, number one unanimously for a month at the end of this season. I'm surprised you'd not bring him up in the tier two conversation. He, I, I thought you would have mentioned him. He he does not. I mean, I love Tony Bennett, uh-huh. and I stand by Tony Bennett 100. Um, but the March the March success isn't there. I mean, yeah. that that to me, if you want to look at a separating factor, any of those guys we mentioned in tier two, you know. You know, if we have at the top of tier two guys that have won championships, you know, Calipari, Bill Self, Bayheim, who we mentioned in there, um, those guys have all won championships. Mm-hmm. Tony Bennett hasn't even sniffed a championship, has only won three games in March in a single year, gotten to the Elite Eight, 
hasn't broken through that final four yet. I think on a regular season scale, yeah, he might, he's a tier two guy. I mean, his team the last five years with, you know, not exemplary talent, um, you know, talented guys, but these aren't the top recruits. You know, they've been one of the best teams in the country um, the last five years, but when you don't win in March, and those are the criteria that a lot of people set as what defines success, he doesn't deserve to be there. I mean, that's just the that simple fact. Coach the year multiple times. Yeah, he's and he is a phenomenal coach. But I think it's really hard to to put him up in a conversation with guys who have multiple Final Fours and champion and a championship, um, who also you know have had their share of one seeds or their share of really strong teams when he hasn't gotten to the Final Four yet. And they have had losses like blowing a 15-point lead in 10 minutes to Syracuse in the, elite, in the Elite Eight or losing to, you know, albeit crazy circumstances, but losing to a 16 seed as the number one overall seed in the tournament, losing to Florida by 40 points um, or however many points it was last year, losing to Michigan State as a two seed when they were a seven. I think there's been enough... You, there's enough qualms you can have with his March record um, that prevents him from being in that status. Yeah, I have two big knacks on Tony Bennett. Um, the first being, um, you know, he's always, you know, praised for doing a lot with a little. And my criticism of that is that I just don't think he creates a system that attracts the best talent. Um, he has a great recruiting area. You have D.C. not only two hours away. Um, you know, you have Baltimore. A, Baltimore. You have a good talent level. Um, and he seems not to be able to, you know, attract that, um, those top recruits. Um, and for me, it's just that, you know, people look at him and think, I'm not going to be able to shine this system. Um, I'm not going to be able to, you know, show, you know, how many points I can score and stuff like that. Um, and that's just his model. And he hasn't really adapted at all in my mind. Um, and, you know, leading the second act is more, you know, his in-game coaching for me has always, um, has always been a struggle for him. Um, he doesn't really seem to make those adaptations like you need to, um, you know, playing a 16C when you're tied at half, you know, knowing what to tell your players, knowing what adjustments to take. Um, you know, he doesn't really seem to have that. I think it's funny because you mentioned the in-game coaching. And I think generally UVA is a very good adjustment team, except in the games where disaster completely strikes. And it almost always you could point it back to, you know, what the heck were they doing? You think about the Syracuse game when they're up 15 with 10 minutes left and Syracuse speeds the game up and it's like he was, you know, they, was, they didn't do anything to help in that circumstance or again like UMBC. But I think generally he's very good at that. But in the games that are, you know, really disastrous, I think a lot of that does seem to fall back on and him. And you go to a lot of the games, and you can, you know, tell me, but it seems like when I've been to the games and when he struggled at times, even his body language just shows that he just doesn't really seem to know what to do. He's always, you know, sitting there quiet, you know, not really making those adjustments. Like you see that, you know, energy from Coach yeah. K, from Jay Wright, you know, trying to amp up those players. He doesn't really seem to you know, have that passion to make those adjustments and seems like, oh, I'm just going to stick with this system. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Well, he's a very system oriented guy. I would say the games I go to when I'm sitting really close behind him is their home game. So they're usually winning. So mm -hmm. he's usually out there commanding them and doing an excellent job. But I mean, you do think back to that Syracuse game and even UMBC, those are the ones that really stick out where he's really just kind of crouching down and staring at it. And it's like, there are no answers and maybe there were no answers to be had. Like, Against Syracuse, you know, how many two-on-ones can you blow and blame it on the coach? I mean, really, that's not necessarily on him. But in some ways, you know, it always the responsibility always leads back there. 
But I mean, I, for me, it just comes back to that March success. I mean, I kind of would combat your your point on he doesn't hasn't changed his system to attract the top players. I would think at UVA's system, they're they're not looking for those guys. If you want to be a guy that comes in and shines on offense, but you're not willing to commit to the defensive side, you're not going to do well here. And I think that's perfectly fine. And it's and I've never thought that they needed an adjustment to that. But you get to this point where the March struggles have become, you know, in the face of losing to a 16 seed, become very real. And I think. There's got to be maybe some adjustment. I wouldn't say anything drastic, but I think, you know, losing to a 16 seed, I think in some way might wake you up and and lead you to to thinking like maybe there's something we could do different. I, I don't think it's a necessity because I still think they're going to be a very strong team for the foreseeable future as long as he is at UVA, but I think there could be an adjustment that that could help. Yeah, but I think as you mentioned earlier, you know, Villanova's this team, right, has one through six guys that can all score, that can all go off at any point. UVA barely only has one or two at most a season. Um, and that's always been UVA's problem, especially going into the tournament when you need that talent level, um, when you're struggling, you know, you know, for those players to show up in those big games. Um, and UVA always seems to lack that. And, you know, again, I hope this is a wake-up call. Um, because for me, the system that he has right now, while always, I, in my mind, you know, have regular season success, I just don't think it will have that postseason success. Um, just with the system he has. Yeah, one last thing before we transition away from talking about college basketball, but I think if he were able to put together a recruiting class like he did, the one that has Kyle Guy, Ty Jerome, DeAndre Hunter, uh, Jay Huff, who we've yet to really see, if he was able to do that every single year or even every other year, which he has not been, this has been his best, that class has been his best class by far and no class before since has really rivaled it. If he was able to do that every year or every other year, I think UVA even with their playing style, would start to look a lot more like Villanova. Mm-hmm. I think Villanova's been able to get that kind of recruiting class, you know, one McDonald's All-American, one five-star guy, supplemented with some three- and four-star guys who you can develop. They've been able to do that for a consistent period, and the results have shown where they're just a com- this completely dominant team. No one's leaving early for the NBA, but all of your guys are really, really good basketball players, especially as they get to those later years. UVA is going to be in a similar situation with those guys we mentioned, Guy, Jerome, and DeAndre Hunter specifically. If they're able to get those kinds of recruiting classes consistently, I think that's when you see UVA take the next step. So you're saying that we've basically seen the results with Villanova and we're perhaps seeing the beginning of that process with UVA. Right. So I think one good parallel too, and I did want to mention this, is that Jay Wright, a lot of a lack of tournament success a long time at Villanova. Really good teams, very consistently. You know, but you think like the year before, uh, the year before they won the championship, so 2015, they were a one seed. They lost to NC State in uh, in the second round, who was an eight seed. A lot of people, a lot of Villanova fans, you look at old takes, exposed Twitter account, ex- you know, expose them as you know people were like Jay Wright stinks. All these Villanova fans are saying, you know, he doesn't win in the tournament. All of a sudden, you've seen a click where he's won, you know, two out of three now, and they just look like the dominant team moving forward. Probably the best program in college basketball currently. Um, and I think UVA really can parallel that in the sense that a lot of frustration with their March performance around a lot of joy with their regular season performance. And once you're able to convert that to March performance, I think it'll be a snowball effect, hopefully and potentially, and UVA can can really elevate themselves. And Tony Bennett can really elevate himself into those tier one, tier two categories. Yeah, no, I think it'll be really exciting to see what this class can do in the future uh, in the future years with Ty Jerome, with Kyle Guy. And I think DeAndre Hunter is probably leaving after next year, but see what those guys can do in the future especially when they become juniors and seniors and have that experience. Um, It'll be very exciting to see them play. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I think that's actually going to do it for us tonight. We're going to talk. We had a great conversation uh, with Ted Town, who's the assistant general manager for the uh, Washington Nationals. Uh, spoke to our club last um, last week on Monday. Um, we're gonna we're gonna go in depth on that next week because this went a little bit longer than we thought. We don't want to hold anyone too long, but we'll we'll dive into that next week. See you guys.